Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace, where we bring together prospect editors and experts pushing the question, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and this week we look at one of the most important ideas that shapes our politics and our society. That's right, economics is going to go under the microscope. Do we need to tear up the old textbooks and start again? Howard Reed and Linda Yu both discuss their pieces on the subject, which are in our May issue. The reason why these great economists um, are great is because partly because they're generalists. In other words, they focus on the big picture. And if we do have to start again when it comes to economics, who is going to be in number 10 to put the new thinking into practice? Could it be... Jacob Rees-Mogg. We speak to Sonia Pennell, who's written an in-depth profile of the high-profile Tory for us, who's suddenly and strangely a hotly-tipped favourite for the job. And we also hear from Patience Wheatcroft, who's a Conservative peer who's sceptical of the Brexit process and is worried that the government's getting sidetracked on all sorts of other important legislation. Parliament is trying to enact a piece of legislation which the majority of parliamentarians believe will be truly damaging to their country. So it's not surprising if there's a degree of unhappiness about the place because of that. Right, so first of all to economics and why it's all gone wrong. Howard, you're the guy who's written the big essay for us. Um, What's so wrong with economics? Thanks, Tom. Well, I think there are, um, as I say in the article, I think there are fundamental problems with um, economics as it's currently taught and as it's currently practiced by professional economics, the kind of mainstream uh, neoclassical um, economic model as we call it, um, I think has some fundamental issues with it. And whilst there has been, uh, there have been attempts recently with things like the Rethinking Economics Movement and um, INET and things like that to um, kind of improve uh, economic practice in particular and modify the curriculum. These are really kind of still tweaking around the edges to a certain extent and I think we need to, we're going to need to do more than that to restructure economics so it actually starts delivering uh, useful analysis. I think we actually need to kind of almost take it to pieces and rebuild from scratch, kind of a Haynes manual approach to um, redoing economics, if you will. Um, um, let's just try and home in on exactly what's wrong. So studying the economy in itself, obviously not a not a silly thing to do. No, I mean, and in fact, it's essential. You know, we. I mean, and one area where things have improved a lot over the last 50 years is that we've got a lot more data than we used to have. Uh, we've got a lot more 
data on uh, the aggregate economy, also on households, firms and individuals than we used to have. So that is fine and that can be used by economists and other social scientists. The problem, I think, is the motivating assumptions behind the actual economic theory that are taught at university and also that find their way out into the real world, either explicitly or implicitly. I think there's there's probably three main problems. Um, firstly, we have a economic... Uh, economic theory that's based around um, a very selfish individualist mindset, the uh, the utility-maximising consumer, the profit-maximising firm. Not only is this, I think, a flawed uh, a flawed description of how a lot of um, a lot of labour, product, and goods and services markets actually work, but it actually airbrushes out the theory. Actually, airbrushes out any of the negative consequences of this kind of behaviour and presents it as, on the contrary, a very good thing for society when it isn't always. Um, so so it makes conceives us and nudges us to be too selfish. Yeah, think? it pushes us in the direction of becoming this kind of rational economic person template, uh, which where we're not always kind of set up to do that. We're not set up to process information like computers. Um, and pushing us more in the direction of trying to be like that may actually be counterproductive um, and may actually be lying behind a lot of the reforms that we've seen in the so-called neoliberal revolution um, of the last 40 years. Um, things like reforms to the way people uh, people purchase their pensions, reform privatisation, contracting out, loads of different areas one could look at. But the, the, the underlying theory you're concerned to attack is actually older than this sort of 1970s, 1980s oh, yeah. stuff. And you said there were three mm. um, big problems with it. One then is this selfish individualism. One is this selfish individualism. Um, the second, which I've already touched on, is that it, it, it's a kind of flawed description of how people actually operate, yeah. whether in firms or as individual consumers or in the labour market. Um, and I think the third big problem is that some of the um, some of the main concepts that are important in in how the economy has evolved over the last 250 years, particularly technological progress. Mm. Um, it, it, is, it is featured in economic theory, but it's almost a kind of add-on at the end. You know, we're taught this, what's called this general equilibrium theory um, of how markets are efficient. Um, but, and, and they all, you know, markets all clear simultaneously and it's a static model. And then technological progress is kind of brought in as a sort of overlay on that. And it's not just, and it's not really kind of integrated into the theory. There is a there is a relatively new development over the last twenty or thirty years called endogenous growth theory, which aims to integrate technological progress into the model, but doesn't totally succeed in my view. We may well need to start with technological progress as the first thing, and they la and then lay all, all the other stuff on top of that. So you know we kind of do things upside down from how. So we it's do really it. this this idea of almost like a, a machiney approach to the economics, where one cog turns another, rather than big dynamic things, Linda, where really big things change. And when you've written a new book about the great classical economists, they were very seized by the founding fathers of the discipline, economics as a, uh, the economy as a, a, a living dynamic thing that did interact with society. Is that fair? Uh, yes. The um, So the book covers a range of uh, I would say economists from an earlier vintage, um, so last two centuries. So we start with classical economists like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and then it goes through 
Karl Marx, which uh, takes to the other extreme, and then to the other extreme, Friedrich Hayek, and then later on, other free market proponents like Milton Friedman. Um, and it also focuses on what's known as neoclassical economics, which was um, a revision to the way the classical economists thought. And that was done in Britain by the Cambridge School of Economics, led by Alfred Marshall, in America by Irving Fisher. Um, and that was followed by the Keynesian revolution of the 1930s. Um, and Keynes was not unchallenged either. Um, not only did he famously have feuds with Hayek, um, as well as Schumpeter, who was actually part of the Austrian school, um, he and his theories essentially were trumped in the 70s by the rise of monetarists like Milton Friedman, who could explain the high inflation and the high unemployment of the period. So macroeconomics, which is what I focus on, theories on growth and development, how uh, the market works, where it doesn't work, is currently known as the new neoclassical synthesis. So it essentially takes the best bits of Keynesianism, classical economics, and monetarism, and forms a theory to help organize our thinking around the economy. So I mean, you say there that actually what we've got, maybe what is taught in universities is quite eclectic and takes the best from lots of different people. But you also, I think, did recognise that um, there was a sense in which the great economists, and particularly maybe the further back you go, painted on this sort of slightly broader canvas maybe than uh, economists are encouraged to do now. Is that fair? Yeah, so... The reason why these great economists um, are great is because partly because they're generalists. In other words, they focus on the big picture. So whether that's industrial revolution, trying to understand why in even in the midst of the industrial revolution, you needed to protect people's education, you needed to think about protectionism, all the way to the 20th century great economists, including one of the ones I write about who's still alive and working at the age of 93. They are modern incarnations of the generalist economists. And we don't have that many of those anymore. So the general economists tackled all the questions. You didn't just specialize, for instance, in financial economics or economic forecasting. The general economists, even if the answers were not clear, contradictory, messy, the data was imperfect, the models were um, incomplete, they still looked at questions like, um, how do you generate, say, innovation? Schumpeter undertook massive studies for his creative destruction theory. He looked at swathes of industries around the world and tried to explain that capitalism, the essence of capitalism, was entrepreneurship. And he didn't just stop there. He wrote his best-known book. is called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And it became very well-known in the post-war period because at that time, about... A good portion of the world, I would say probably around a quarter were communists, another third or so were socialists. And he essentially argued for the market economy. And that argument is about, in the words of um, Friedrich Hayek, another member of the Austrian school, it was actually about freedom. It wasn't just about how a narrow question worked. Whereas I think a lot of economists today are very specialized, very technical, and very narrow. Patience, I mean, you've spent many years writing about business, about economics. Does this description that's kind of emerging out of 
the other contributors here as economics that may be something that's got a bit too arid, a bit too specialised. Does that feel right to you? Yes, it does. And Howard's piece really resonated with me. Of course, economics is a very inexact science. I used to have an economics correspondent who was so able to change his mind that I was tempted to put at the bottom of his piece each week that uh, he will reply to this article next week. (laughs) But certainly things have got arid. And if you look at the way that our society has evolved, clearly economics isn't serving us well. Uh, It doesn't measure well-being. And well-being in our society is looking pretty poorly to me at the moment. So I think Hard's absolutely right. It's time for a rethink. It has got too arid. We're anyhow not brilliant at measuring even the things that we try to measure. I'm highly dubious, for instance, about the productivity statistics that govern so much thinking in this country. So let's go back to basics and think again about what it is we're trying to achieve. And I think there needs to be some radical rethinking about what the ideal would look like and how economics could help shape that. Thanks. Um, Before we bring Howard back in, I just wondered if Linda could say a little bit more on, as you see it, Linda, the definition of this thing that Howard's keen to attack, neoclassical economics. You said that is something you think kind of grew up at a particular time out of the Cambridge School in the turn of the 20th century. How how do you... um, think of neoclassical economics and, and how, how far do you think it still shapes, as Howard seems to think, the way we think about economics as a whole? What modern macro is known as the new neoclassical synthesis. So one of the bases of it is the neoclassical strand, um, which has gone through a lot of permutations. Um, but it also has Keynesianism and it also has monetarism. So the and with China's success, I sometimes think even a bit of Marxism might creep in from time to time. But it's not, um, it's not a, a st- an economic stream ideology or, or an idea changes over time. So I think the context changes and where it doesn't serve, uh, it doesn't work, as we've seen with the 2008 crisis. I think economics hasn't had... Um, a great decade, um, that is when you have these other theories who come in. And as I explained before, Keynesianism was replaced, in a sense, by a whole new new, new classical school, because Keynesianism didn't explain um, this very unusual period in the 70s. So economics is about renewal, and it should be, because that is all it is. It's an empirical, um, it should be, I should say, a lot, they're mm. obviously theorists, mm. but ultimately, Economics is about people. It's about how they interact. It's about firms. It's about tools to think about how you organize a market. And where it doesn't work, it does need, uh, and it always has over the last two centuries, changed. And I think this is a very good time to think about um, why economists have become narrow. And in fact, I think one of the reasons why the 2008 crisis was missed by many is because if you, um, I mentioned, specialize in financial economics, you probably don't do general macro. If you do general macro, you probably don't even do economic forecasting. So a lot of people think economists are forecasters, but only about 10% of research is actually in forecasting. So without being a generalist and seeing across different disciplines, you really can't draw the um, links. So people are stuck in these silos, um, Howard, and with um, patience at least, you've got um, something of a consensus here that like, you know, 100 years on from those basic what we call microeconomic textbooks having been 
written, it might be time to rip them up and have another go. Um, but what would a new economics look like? Obviously, that's a, <laughs> a big final question to throw mm. at you. But any thoughts at all? Well, I think there's I think there's several aspects which a new economics needs to have. One is I think we need to acknowledge that once you go beyond making very, very simple factual statements about the economy, like, you know, the rate of inflation last month was 3% or whatever, once you go beyond that to make more complex statements, there's really no such thing as value-free analysis of the economy. Neoclassical economics tries to make this distinction between normative analysis, which is value judgments, and positive, which is everything else. But actually, I would say that most things are a value judgment. Um, interestingly, that relates back to people like uh, people that Linda was talking about, like Milton Friedman and Schumpeter, who were very clear most of the time they were making value judgments. Um, they were mainly on the right of the political spectrum, but the point still holds whether we're talking about right or left. So I think we need to be more honest about when we're making value judgments about the economy. Um, secondly, I think we need to base economic theory much more on how people actually operate rather than how neoclassical economics would like a kind of idealised, rational firm or individual to operate and that means bringing in ideas from psychology so sociology and other social science disciplines for the last 50 years or so economics has been kind of gradually colonizing bits of psychology bits of sociology i think we need two-way traffic and some reverse colonization taking place there and finally i think we need to put technological progress and power relationships um, between say workers and firms in the labour market and how people bargain for wages and things like that needs to be centre stage um, because a lot of these things are ignored together with other concepts like debt. I mean, one of the reasons that um, economists missed the mainstream economists missed the financial crash they didn't say anything about debt. It was only a couple of radical economists like um, Steve Keane, for example, at, who's now at Kingston University in South East London, who actually saw this coming at all. So we need to bring in some of these concepts that have rather been left out in the cold and I think we'll be able to do a lot better doing going forward if we can do that. Patience, a, f a final word to you. I'm, I'm struck by what seems to be something of a consensus between you and Howard, because you come at things, I think, from quite different political perspectives. But um, when he's talking about what a less arid new economics might look like, do you think it could address your concerns too? I, th I think it certainly could, because it's, Howard is talking about measuring other things, which we don't measure at the moment, and looking at people's behaviour as it actually is rather than as economists might take it to be. And so I think it's, it's probably an approach that requires far more of a psychological input and maybe things have to go cross-disciplinary uh, far more than they have in the past if we're not going to be caught in this arid landscape that goes from um, monetarism one day to Keynesianism the next. I think you know, let's try and look at the, the bigger outcome. Well, one person who's looking at bigger outcomes at the moment, it seems, is Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, he's moved on from the normal kind of formulations about saying, oh, no, 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 I'd never want to be prime minister, to um, slightly more artful political denials of the fact that he wants to get to the top. Earlier today, I spoke to Sonia Pennell about Rees-Mogg and why it is that he seems to be so plausible and popular now. He's a brand. He's a sort of a piece of performing art, if you like. He he taps into people's emotions by presenting a, a brand. He's a terrific salesman. Of course, his product is, is Jacob Rees-Mogg, and we're still not 
totally sure what that represents or what views he holds, although we get some clues, some of which are, uh, are in, in many people's views, quite disturbing. But he is someone who plays with our emotions, is self-deprecating, cracks a few jokes, and always stays in character. He makes people feel a little bit better about themselves, perhaps, a little bit better about Britain. But maybe the Britain that he presents or represents is not one that actually exists and maybe never did. Um, Let's come on to those things you refer to as kind of worrying hints about where his policy might lie in a moment. But first of all, you've written a book on Boris Johnson, a kind of another unlikely um, person who at one point was talked of uh, very much as a, a as an ex-prime minister. Should we see Jacob Rees-Mogg as much, very much in the, in, in the Boris Johnson mould or is he uh, sui generis? Um, no, I think he is very much in the Boris Johnson mould. Again, you know, Boris was a brand, this sort of lovable, lovable buffoon type, um, you know, very sort of cuddly, lots of good jokes, prone to gas. Where Boris Johnson has perhaps gone wrong and where he is no longer the sort of the bookie's favourite to become Prime Minister one of these days is that he went out of character. He stopped being a lovable buffoon. People saw that um, he was actually perhaps not as nice as they thought, certainly not as cuddly, and not terribly competent either, as we've seen again in, in recent days. So that was a mistake he, he made, whereas at the moment, at least, Jacob Rees-Mogg is very much stuck to the brand. Everything he does, everything he says, um, sort of enhances that brand, if you like. But I think it is, it is something, that, a phenomenon that we see now. It's this sort of idea of authenticity, the sort of Trump idea that, that they're true to themselves, that they're, they're not, you know, real, proper politicians. They're good old people just like us, perhaps, who, you know, the cards have dealt this, this, this part to play in life. Um, I, I do actually think it's, it's all a ruse. It, it is no more than an act, but it, it is a very successful one. But when he first arrived uh, in the Westminster Village in uh, 2010, um, he... Uh... Uh, I'll struggle if I try and say it, but the the, the word invented at Eton, flocky knocky nigh hilly filification or something. Something he, like that. And he made a point of like getting this in Hansart and what a what a jolly jape that was. I mean, he wasn't trying to put himself on the path to number ten then, was he? He was just having fun. Um and yet when you listen to him now, he's um sounds like a typical artful politician saying, oh, I'm not sure I would uh, see myself in number 10, whereas uh, it's starting to sound like he might. Well, I think two things there. Yes, perhaps at that point he didn't really think that number 10 was in his grasp, but he clearly wanted attention, otherwise you don't, um, you know, play stunts like that. I mean, that's, that's quite obvious. I think as time has passed and our political life has become more and more bizarre and turbulent, he now suddenly does uh, discover that, you know, this really is a possibility. And I don't think there is a politician alive who doesn't sneakily rather wish that they could become prime minister. So, so now that this slightly absurd idea is becoming less absurd by the day, you know, he, he is working double hard on, on presenting the Jacob Rees-Mogg brand. Well, in these circumstances, it's obviously going to be worth having a, a little think about what a Rees-Mogg path to the premiership might have to involve. Um, Sonia, you've thought about this in your essay. Part of it, maybe the first part, seems to be a question of whether or not he can get on with colleagues. 
Yes, that's right. I mean, this is where, of course, he may come unstuck. Now, the problem with being a brand, a performer, you know, uh, um, an ever-present face um, on the media is that you do intend, you tend to incite jealousy amongst your colleagues. And I think there was a certain amount of jealousy um, over Jacob Rees-Mogg, just as has been in the past, um, Boris. But on a more serious note, I think there were a lot of Tory MPs, who knows how many exactly, but certainly some of the ones that I spoke to, who are horrified at some of his views and believe he's an incredibly divisive figure, not at all the unifying person that we as a country need right now. Now, this is important because... Um, the Tory MPs have the choice as to which two names go to the party at large in, in the country. They have the final say, that's 50 to 70,000 people, we're not quite sure. Members of the party have the final say, but they can only choose one of two names presented to them by MPs. Now, if Jacob Rees-Mogg really can't gather enough support in Parliament, it's just not going to happen. And it's interesting, I mean, he is... He is chairman of a group, um, the ERG, the European Reform Group, and um, they are a powerful presence. And yet when I spoke to a few members of that group, um, including one minister, uh, he also said, although he's a Brexit fellow traveller with, with Maurice Nod, that he had no um, you know, qualifications for the job of leader and was in, indeed not a unifying figure. So... I don't think it's as clear-cut as people say. That said, politics at the moment is so turgid, so extraordinary, so unpredictable that one has to have a sort of, you know, who knows what can happen attitude to all of these things. Well, if, if we don't know what will happen, maybe it's worth just pausing a little bit on um, some of his beliefs. We know that he's um, very bullish when it comes to Brexit. He wants a, a, a very hard or clean Brexit, as he Put it. But one of the things people might know a bit less about is some of his social views that you talk about in your piece. Yes, I mean, just to touch on Brexit briefly, he does want a clean, hard Brexit, but we're never quite sure why, and he never really comes up with, you know, proper facts and statistics to back it. It's, it's almost as if it's a debating point. It's a simple point to make, whether soft exit or remaining within the EU, as we're discovering more and more every day, is incredibly complicated. So it is a nice, simple debating point, and he did earn his spurs, in the Eton Debating Society, and I think one has to remember that certain other members of Parliament have mentioned came up the same way. But as to what his views are, I mean, perhaps um, we should look at his views on um, abortion, for instance, which he is against in all cases, even in um, the event of, of rape or incest. Now, that's extraordinary that in the 21st century we can be talking about a mainstream politician with views like that, and I think his views about women generally, about gay marriage, for example, um, incredibly sort of anti-progressive, if you like. Also immigration. Um, there are various doubts as to um, quite how, where he stands on immigration and certain indications that, again, he has extremely reactionary views. Um, he seems to be very close to Steve Bannon, um, President Trump's former chief of staff and sort of chief strategist, um, who is a self-professed disciple of Benito Mussolini. I mean, the, the, these things put together 
Um, again, I mean, one can only sort of gasp that in the 21st century we can discuss as a potential prime minister, British Prime Minister, or even a likely British Prime Minister, who um, attaches his name to views of this sort. But that's where we are. But he um, is in the running. He does seem to have a certain popularity. He seems unflappable when he's sort of uh, heckled and uh, he kind of like manages to keep his calm he um, doesn't mind at all if people say he's dreadful because he's got six children and he's never changed a nappy there's just a kind of ease with himself perhaps that makes him a, a player in this age of authenticity I think <clears throat> that's interesting isn't it I mean again we go back to sort of Boris who was supposed to be the, the lovable rose we um, were supposed to think of him as sort of a cuddly figure and actually only when tackled or challenged did uh, another darker side to him emerge and I think that is also the case with with Jacob Rees-Mogg he is brilliant at sticking to character to to playing his part to um, polishing and refining and honing Jacob Rees-Mogg's brand only occasionally when he has been caught out as a slightly sort of darker uh, side to his character come out including as a recent um, episodes in which I think Prospect was, um, you know, played a, a part in which he uh, attributed some words to, um, I think, Frank Chief, who certainly hadn't said them. And when challenged on this, and when the proof was provided, he he was sort of slightly snarling. And we suddenly saw the, the mask of politeness slip a little. Um, and it's when politicians of his sort lose that absolute sort of pure persona that things start to go wrong. The remarkable thing is is that the media have by and large given Jacob Rees-Mogg an unbelievably soft ride just as they did with, with Boris. It's almost as if they're in love with this persona and, and don't want to challenge it in any way. But I guess at some point that will happen. Well, uh, you've done a, a good first effort at um, trying to make sure it does happen in the new issue of Prospects. So thank you very much, um, Sonia. Patience, um, you've written for us about the biggest of all bees in Jacob Rees's Mogg's um, <laughs> uh, bonnet, which is Brexit. Um, and um, you might start and finish your article with quite an arresting claim that despite what we keep being told at the dispatch box, it ain't necessarily a done deal. Tell our listeners why not. It's certainly not a done deal. We gave our notification under Article 50 of an intention to withdraw from the EU but that's all it was, a notification of an intention. And as we have learned more and more about the difficulties of getting out of the EU with a decent deal that will be good for the country, I think it's increasingly clear that people don't want to jump off a cliff edge and they would like a say as to whether or not they think it's a good idea to do that. And the latest opinion polls are showing a majority of people don't think that politicians should have the final say on the deal, but that the public should have the final say on the deal. Now, I don't like referenda. I think they're a dangerous thing to have. However, I have a feeling that if you get into a mess through a referendum, then maybe the only way out is a referendum. And I think gradually that's where we'll head. It's also, of course, a very neat way out for the government, which is struggling to find a, a 
clever way of executing Brexit without doing deep damage to the country. I mean, we've, we've, we've almost got a couple of different political problems, haven't we? The government can't decide whether it wants to stay aligned with Europe or not. Different members of the government disagree about that. And so, you know, whether we're in the customs union, this sort of second order thing. Um, and they keep coming up with artful phrases that allow them to... Um, like put off the moment of decision. But with this clock ticking down towards now less than a year, March the 29th, um, how do you see this panning out in process terms? When are they going to have to decide what they're going to do? And if they did want to change course, what would be the moment to do so? Well, as you say, the clock is ticking. It's ticking very fast because the, the Council of Europe is likely to come to a decision in October about the, the terms of the deal that will be offered. The problem for us is that that's likely to be pretty broad brush. And I think it's extremely dangerous for us to leave the EU, whether we're going into a transition period or an implementation period or whatever you call it, without being very clear about what the terms of the deal are. And, and, and could it be, I mean, a classic European way of handling things is through a fudge and delay. We had that time and again with the euro crisis. Transition deal, 18 months at first, might be Prime Minister changes at some point and then suddenly it's two and a half years and then this general election, we say it's three and a half years. Isn't that the way to make this thing go away? I think the country is losing its appetite for fudge. It would prefer some red meat. And at the moment, there's no sign of that coming along. If you're in business, what you really need is clarity, whether it's in, out, whatever it is, you need to know the terms. And I'm amazed that they're being quite as accepting of the idea of a transition period in which they may not know the terms. Indeed, our, our former minister for exiting the European Union, George Bridges, has said that actually we are in danger of walking up a gangplank that leads into thin air. Now, that seems to me a very dangerous thing to do. And I trust the British public to look at new facts and come to a new conclusion. Howard, um, you get from the sort of most pro-Brexit, Liam Fox, part of the Conservative Party, or Jacob Rees-Mogg indeed, you get this line, well, you know, Europe's already less than half of our exports and it's been tending to go down and the growth areas in the world of Brazil and uh, China and wherever else, this is going to be fine. We can walk out of the single European market and trade with other people. Do you buy that at all as an economist? Um, I don't really buy it. Now, I'm not I'm not the most um, gung-ho person about for economic forecasting or economic, you know, conventional economic modelling as things stand. But... Um, all the well, almost all the modelling I've seen of the impact of Brexit, both the kind of conventional modelling or less conventional types of model, shows the impact will be negative. They just differ on the size of the negative impact. That's almost all. All the credible work. There is a little bit of what I what I would say is incredible work by kind of people like economists for Brexit, who I think are just kind of really almost making up the numbers to suit themselves, really. Um, but I think there's a big consensus um, in the profession that Brexit is going to be very damaging because we're just severing uh, one of our most important 
links with our trading partners. And do you think this is a consensus? Because one thing that people on um, the pro-Brexit side says, oh, you economists thought the euro was a wonderful idea and it turned out to be not so hot. Do you think this is different? Do you think this it is, is a real well, consensus? It is. Well, th- on the euro, I mean, the people, a lot of people didn't think that it was going to be so hot. I mean, look at Gordon Brown's kind of five economic tests based on standard treasury modelling. Um, the euro actually is an example of why we why, why we why we might want to believe um, the uh, some of the conventional modelling um, more than we believe um, pro Brexit voices. Linda, um, you've written about many many economists. One of the greats where um, trade is concerned is Ricardo. Where do you think he would have been on this question of whether we can trade with the rest of the world rather than with? Um, rather than just with Europe? Um, I think Ricardo is writing at a time when trade, and this is still quite true, trade is based on the economic strength of your own country. So your trade position is an outcome of whether you're industrialized, whether you're productive, whether you're efficient. And later trade economists obviously have taken his insights. So the last chapter of my book is, is around globalization. And I write about Brexit and Trumpism. And um, and I think one of the, the great economists I feature there is Paul Samuelson, who is known as the last great general economist. So he's one of the last to do both trade theory and how you do optimal economic policy. And I think if you look at sort of the, um, the lineage of trade economists, it becomes quite clear that there are um, things that make your country more efficient. So for instance, countries specialize in what they're least bad at. And um, if you can produce something with scale, you can sell more of it because costs are lower for firms. They have a bigger market. So the EU single market is a very big integrated manufactured goods market. And so I think that side of it, um, to replace that uh, with other trade deals, I think would be quite hard because of the deep uh, trade links that um, that enables um, what we have with the EU at the moment, which is called roll. It's called a roll roll trade, roll on roll off, because you don't have any borders and you can treat six hundred million people as your own uh, for traded goods. So, but it's not to say it's impossible, but that's essentially the challenge that. Um, we, that Britain would have to face if it wanted to replicate this with other countries. But I think the great economist who may actually have the most insight on Brexit is another one I feature uh, called Douglas North. So Douglas North rejected um, pretty much um, mainstream economic models. He says it didn't explain why some countries are rich and most countries are poor. And his theory is called path dependence. So if the UK and wanted to forge a trade agreement with the EU um, or to do something, um, well, yes, that is part of Brexit, or to do whatever it wanted to do, path dependence means that history matters, institutions matter. So we cannot view our relationship with the EU as if we were a new entrant to the EU wanting to forge an agreement afresh. There's history there. There are things that will affect how they look at us, how we look at them. There are other political strategic considerations, such as um, how it looks to other member states, if they're worried about um, the British getting too good a deal. Um, Britain is also locked into its own path dependence. Its history with the EU um, will affect how the next stages go. So to me, um, quite a lot of... Um, uncertainty around Brexit um, will remain for some time. But I think 
with this kind of maybe um, analysis from different facets, we could slightly um, have a better grasp of at least how to analyze it. There are no clear-cut answers, obviously. Although, patients, it does sound like, however big picture Linda's being, however radical Howard's trying to be, this is one of the things where you can put quite a lot of economists in a room and they will tend to say, if things go well, you might end up just a bit poorer than you are at the moment. It doesn't feel like there's a serious challenge to that. There isn't a serious challenge to it. And so we're in the most extraordinary position where Parliament is trying to enact a piece of legislation which the majority of parliamentarians believe will be truly damaging to their country. So it's not surprising if there's a degree of unhappiness about the place because of that. And I like to think that common sense will prevail and country will be taken above party. Uh, we'll see when we get back next week and start voting on the report stage of the withdrawal bill in the Lords. And almost certainly some amendments will be carried because we do not want to damage the country. Amendments which could, in the end, some series of crunch votes down the line, possibly pave the way for another referendum? Amendments which will challenge the current thinking because certainly there is a view from business as well as from Parliament that we should try and remain in a customs union. That, of course, is only the first step towards getting anywhere near to solving the Irish issue, which I'm afraid just saying that technology will be the answer uh, doesn't really wash. So there will be amendments on Ireland as well. And then we'll certainly be pressing for a meaningful vote on the deal because if we've reclaimed sovereignty for Parliament, Parliament has to have a say on whether we leave on the terms that are on offer, leave without a deal or don't leave. So there we have it, small stitches being picked and gradually perhaps the whole thing coming unstuck. Um, my um, thanks to our guests here, Howard Reed, Linda Yu, Patience Wheatcroft and also Sonia Pennell, who we heard from earlier. I'm Tom Clark and the producer was Jay Elwes. All of the pieces mentioned today will be appearing on our website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk and you might also note that our subscription rates are extremely reasonable while you're there. Um, please be sure to tune in again to the Prospect podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.